This anointed teaching by Apostle Theo Volmerans comes to you from Christian Family Church International. Hi, everybody. So nice to see so many of you at church this Friday Easter morning in person. We need to thank God that we can gather together again. So let's give the Lord a great big praise God here this morning. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. And for those of you that are at home, you couldn't make it to church this morning, we understand. And thank you for joining us on live streaming as well. All right, today's message is titled, Proving the Resurrection. Proving the Resurrection. Now, we know that Jesus has risen because He's in our hearts. And they have arrived too late to tell us He didn't rise from the dead because we know in here that He has. However, we need to be able to convince our family and friends who don't know the Lord, and even skeptics, that Jesus did rise from the dead. And so I'm going to give you five points that will convince the skeptic that Jesus is alive and rose from the dead. The Guinness Book of World Records says that Sir Lionel Laku is by far the most accomplished attorney on the planet. He won 245 murder acquittals in a row. In other words, he defended 245 people who were convicted or accused, rather, of murdering somebody. And he got all of them acquitted, declared innocent, 245 in a row. He must have had world-class mastery of what is reliable and persuasive evidence. He knows what he's doing. Now, Laku, who was knighted twice by the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, also served as a diplomat and a judge. He took the time to apply his legal expertise to thoroughly study the resurrection. Quote, this is what he says, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Then a quote. Now, he received Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, and he said, my life took a 180-degree change in direction. He said, I found real peace, real happiness, and joy, and righteousness, and holiness after accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Did Jesus really die on the cross is a question that many have asked. You might have heard of the swoon theory. Is the idea that Jesus fainted on the cross, the swoon theory. He fainted. He didn't die. That's what they say. 
He took a drug of some kind, which made him appear to be dead, and then the cool, damp air of the tomb revived him, and he emerged alive all of a sudden. Although there are no reputable scholars who currently believe this theory, this was the topic of a popular book several years ago, very popular, titled, Did Christ Survive the Crucifixion? Written by Abu Bakar Salahadin. And this book is still frequently read by skeptics even today. Laku says, Frankly, I was curious about this book myself when I began to sift through the possibilities, but it didn't take long for me to see the fallacy of this position or this argument. All right, let's begin. After Jesus' trial, in which he was declared guilty of blasphemy by claiming to be God, the eyewitness John says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Most skim over this, but a physician named Dr. C. Truman actually analyzed the practice of Roman beatings which took place during the first century. And his conclusion was that Jesus had been mercilessly whipped to the very edge of death. Jesus was tied to a post and beaten at least 39 times with a whip that had jagged bones and balls of lead woven into the leather. Again and again, the whip was brought down with full force on his bare shoulders, his back, and his legs, according to Dr. Davis. At first, the heavy thongs cut through his skin only. Then as the blows continued, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissue, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial blood from veins in the underlying muscle. The small balls of lead first produced large, deep bruises, which are broken up by subsequent blows, Finally, the skin of the back hangs in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. One witness to a Roman flogging gave this description. The sufferer's veins were open to exposure. Some victims died before making it to the cross. Undoubtedly, Jesus was in serious critical condition even before the crucifixion. It's no wonder that history tells us he was unable to carry his own cross. Later, five to seven inch spikes were driven through his wrists. Dr. Alex Metherol, another physician who has studied the crucifixion, said that it would generate an agonizing pain like squeezing your funny bone with a pair of pliers. Now, I don't know about you, but I've hit my funny bone a few times in my life, and it's no joke. 
Now imagine taking a pair of pliers and squeezing your funny bone. That would be unbearable. And that would be like the nails going through the wrists of Jesus. So brutal was death by crucifixion that a new word was coined to describe it, excruciating is the word that was coined, which is a Latin word from out of the cross. After his wrists and feet were nailed securely, Jesus was hoisted up into the air to hang on the cross. And Dr. Metherol said that death from crucifixion is basically a slow death by suffocation. They can't breathe. That's why they die. Because of the stress on his muscles, Jesus couldn't breathe unless he pushed up with his feet to relieve some of the pressure on his chest. Because now he's hanging like that, his shoulder blades are limiting his lungs from expanding. And in order to lift his body up off of his shoulders, uh, off of his arms, he had to put pressure on that spike in his feet. After hours of struggling, after hours of pushing up to breathe and down to rest, exhaustion sets in. Now, if the Roman executioners wanted to hasten the death of those on the cross, they used a mallet, a hammer, to shatter the victim's shin bones so that he could not push up and down anymore. That's what the executioners did to the criminals being crucified on either side of Jesus. They smashed their shin bones. But when they came to Jesus to smash his bones, they saw that he was already dead. And so the scripture came to pass, none of his bones were broken. To confirm this, that he was dead, a soldier thrust a spear between his ribs, didn't break his ribs, puncturing the sack around his heart and the heart itself, causing a clear fluid and blood to drain out of his body. So it looked like water and blood mixed that drained from the sack around his heart, which confirmed he was dead. After that, Roman experts confirmed that he was dead. Let's be clear about this now. Nobody survived the torture of the cross, and that included Jesus. No one survived it. Clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound in his side was inflicted by the spear already dead before that. That was the end of an article, which I've just read, that comes from the highly respectable journal titled The American Medical Association, date 21 March 1986. There's no doubt about it, Jesus died. Jesus died. And this brilliant lawyer, Laku, continues to say, 
And there are five categories of evidence that point affirmatively to the resurrection as being an actual event of history that occurred on a specific day. All right, number one. The first evidence is the reliable testimony of history. 1 Corinthians were written by Paul, the apostle, approximately 20 years after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians that the resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 people at once, he specifically stated that many of those 500 people were still alive at the time he was writing the book of Corinthians. So in effect, he was saying to the readers of the book of Corinthians, hey, this happened so recently that these witnesses are still around. In other words, ask them yourself if you don't believe me, and they'll tell you it's true that Jesus is alive. They saw him after his crucifixion. All right. The second fact of evidence, number two, is the empty tomb. It's unanimous. The body's missing. Everybody agreed the body was missing. Nobody to this day has ever uncovered the body of Jesus himself. It disappeared. That's unanimous. Everybody agreed about that. Jesus was laid to rest in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Jewish council. And the vault was sealed, placed under heavy guard, placed under heavy Roman security. You can see that in Matthew 27, the last few verses. However, it was discovered empty on Easter Sunday morning. The fact that the biblical record says woman discovered the tomb empty lends strong credibility to these accounts because woman had low status in Jewish society and didn't even legally qualify to be a witness. So, if the disciples were manufacturing the story, making it up, undoubtedly they would have claimed that a man discovered the tomb was empty to make it a legal witness. Because the testimony would have been considerably far more credible if a man had found the empty tomb. This is just one more indication that the biblical writers were committed to accurately recording what had actually happened. They wanted everybody to know exactly what happened. It was a woman that found the tomb to be empty. And so they wrote it. Third point to prove that he rose from the dead. The most powerful evidence concerning the empty tomb 
is that nobody ever claimed it wasn't anything else but empty. All right? The Romans never said there was a body in there. The Jews never said there was a body in there. The Pharisees never said there was a body in there. The disciples never said there was a body in there. Everybody agreed the tomb was empty. All right? They tried to bribe the gods to say the disciples stole the body away while the gods were asleep. Which doesn't make sense because Jesus' followers lacked both motive and they lacked opportunity. How were they going to steal the body with a whole bunch of Roman soldiers standing outside the tomb? Besides, how would the gods have known it was the disciples who took the body if the security guards were asleep? Matthew 28, 2. Matthew 28, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the gods shook for fear of this angel, and became like dead men. They must have fallen out on the power of God. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. All right, now skip down to verse 11. Slow Matthew 28. Now while they were going, behold, some of the gods came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. Okay. How dumb can you be? You still breathe. How would the soldiers know that the disciples stole the body if they were sleeping? Their story is messed up. Verse 14. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. All right, if the governor ever finds out about our bribing you with lots of mo- all this money, we will make sure the governor puts you all in jail, in prison. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now Jesus' opponents admitted the grave was empty. The grave was vacant. All right? So the Pharisees admitted it was empty. The Romans admitted it was empty. And, of course, the disciples saw it was empty. The question is, how did it get to become empty? The question is, what happened? All right? So, Laku goes on to say, 
when I was first trying to solve this mystery as a skeptic, I went through the list of suspects, but found that all of them lacked motivation. For instance, the Romans wouldn't have taken the body. They wanted Jesus dead. The Romans were afraid of an insurrection. They were afraid of riots. They wanted Jesus to die. They were glad he was dead. So they wouldn't steal the body. <laughs> they want him in the grave. The Jews wouldn't have taken the body either because they wanted him to stay dead. The last thing they wanted is for Jesus to rise from the dead. Either of them would have loved to have paraded Jesus' dead body up and down the streets of Jerusalem if they could find it. If they could have found Jesus' dead body, they would have taken him up and down the streets of Jerusalem, showed him to everybody to prove he is dead, and that would have been the end of Christianity. Right there, you wouldn't even have, you, would have, you might have read about it in your history books. Might have. If they had found the body and walked with the dead body of Jesus up and down the streets of Jerusalem, but that never happened. They were trying to stop Christianity, and they expended a lot of energy trying to do so. So that would have been perfect. Take the body and show everybody he's dead, and that would have been all, all over. Now, would the disciples be involved in trying to steal the body? That's the last point. Would the disciples be involved in trying to steal the body? Would they want to live a life of suffering, persecution, and then be tortured to death for what they know is a lie? Why would they do that? Why would they be willing to be tortured to death for what they know is a lie if they claim he's resurrected and alive and somebody says, I'm going to kill you for saying that and they still confess, yes, he's alive and they kill him. Isn't that crazy? If they know it's not true. If this had been a charge they had concocted, if they had made up the story, Certainly one of them would have broken ranks under torture and told the truth. All the disciples were martyred to death, executed for their faith in Christ, and not one of them was willing to say, we made the whole thing up. He didn't, die. He didn't rise from the dead. Not one of them. They all died. Nothing less than a witness as awesome as the resurrected Christ could have caused those disciples to hold fast to their confession that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is alive. Until they were tortured to death, nothing else but the resurrection could make that happen. All right, number four, number four, eyewitness testimony. Not only was Jesus' tomb empty, but over a period of 40 days, Jesus appeared alive a dozen times to more than 515 individuals. A dozen times Jesus appeared alive to over 515 individuals over the 40-day period. To men and women, to believers, 
and outers, to groups and individuals, sometimes indoors and sometimes outdoors, in broad daylight as well. He ate with them. He even invited Thomas to put his finger into the nail, uh, in the nail prints in his hands and put his hand into the spear wound in his side in order to verify that he was really alive and that it was him. And this experience was so life-changing for Thomas that he ended up proclaiming at his violent death in South India that Jesus had, in fact, been resurrected. So he was executed for his faith in Christ in India, and his last words were, Jesus Christ is alive, and he was raised from the dead. All right, now point number five, the emergence of the church. The emergence of the church. Suppose that during the political conservative days when Ronald Reagan was president in the United States. Imagine an American left and went overseas somewhere and lost complete contact with the United States, had no idea what was going on. And then let's just imagine, when he came back to America after several years, he found out that a radical Marxist communist had been elected to be the president in Ronald Reagan's place while he was gone. Obviously, a major question would leap into the person's mind, and he'd ask himself what cataclysmic event caused such a major change in the people of the United States to go from a conservative president like Ronald Reagan and, and elect a communist Marxist as the new president. Now, Morland uses this illustration as an analogy for what happened in the first century. When the Christian church was started by Jewish converts, everybody in the upper room, all 120 of them, in Acts chapter 2, who received the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues, all of them were Jews. So the question is, how did they happen to abandon five major Jewish traditions? The change, he said, is even more dramatic than the Reagan scenario. It would have taken something as dramatic as the resurrection to prompt the first century Jewish church. Number one, the reasons why? To switch from Saturday to Sunday worship would be, they would never even dream of doing that. No Jew would do that. Number two, to abandon the system of sacrificing animals for forgiveness of sins. Imagine the Jews abandoning, sacrificing animals for forgiveness of sins. They would never do that. Number three, imagine they abandon the law of Moses as a way to maintain right standing with God. Can you imagine the Jews abandoning the laws of Moses to receive right standing with God? 
And now believing in Jesus for forgiveness and right standing, that would never happen. Number four, imagine them embracing the concept of the Trinity. They believe in one God. We believe in three persons in the Godhead as Christians, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No Jew would ever do that. Never. So, number five. In doing this, those who started the church risked becoming social outcasts and according to the Jewish theology, have their souls damned to hell. If they did that, walked away from their belief system to accept Christianity, a new faith, they, according to their old uh, traditions and belief system, would be damning their soul to hell forever. How could such a thing ever take place among Jews? Only the resurrection offers a rational explanation. Nothing else would do that in their lives. The early church was fueled by the sincerity and enthusiasm of the disciples who had shrunk back with cowardice before Easter. So before Easter, they denied Jesus. But after his resurrection, they boldly proclaimed their faith in Jesus up to their death. After Jesus had conquered the grave, they proclaimed it wherever they went and are willing to die for their faith. If they had been lying, do you think they would have willingly let themselves be tortured to death for a lie? Nobody would do that. Nobody would do that. They were willing only because they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. The resurrection was a reality. Praise God. Praise God. With all my heart, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I'm sure you do as well. So you can listen to this message again, take notes, and take those points and use them to help your friends and family find the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Before I do the altar call, I've been asked by several people, many people in fact, am I going to take the COVID-19 vaccination? Pastor Bev and I have prayed about this and we believe the Lord is telling us not to take it. Now, we will never tell you what to do. You need to pray and ask God to direct you. It's a personal decision you have to make. However, whatever your decision is, whether take the COVID-19 vaccination or not, we have to walk in love with each other. We have to walk in love with each other and love everybody regardless whether they take the vaccination or not. It's not going to affect anybody's salvation. 
The Department of Health, the chief director, contacted us and asked us if we would let them use our property to vaccinate people with COVID-19 vaccinations. The public want to come up to a place to be vaccinated. So I agreed to let them do it as a service to the community. But you need to know our position. As I said, we love everybody. It's their choice. That's all there is to it. Well, we love you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Pastor Bev and I are praying for you continually. All right. How many of you would say, on this wonderful Easter Friday morning, Apostle Theo, I need to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to be sure I'll go to heaven when I die. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you want to know, I'm going to ask you when I count to three to slip up your hand, to indicate to God that you want Him to speak to you in your heart this morning and confirm to your heart that you will go to heaven one day. And I'm going to pray right now. And if you'll raise your hand after I've counted to three, then God will speak to you when I pray my prayer. Here I go. Raise your hand now. One, two, three. All right. Now God's going to speak to your heart and give you the assurance you want to receive. Dear Father, I thank you. Say this prayer with me. Dear Father God, I thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross in my place that I can be forgiven for my sins. Thank you, Jesus. Please forgive me, Jesus, for all of my sins. Come into my heart and save my life. I declare you are my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus. Now, if you said that prayer, continue to serve the Lord and be faithful, and we're going to see you in heaven. God bless you all. We're praying for you continually from Pastor Bev and from me. Love you very much. Thank you for joining us during this episode of Living Life with Dr. Theo and Bev Volmerantz. We hope that through this inspired teaching, you had an encounter with God. If you enjoy the teaching ministry of Apostle Theo and Dr. Bev Volmerantz and would like to enjoy more resources, we hope you will visit our website at www.christianfamilychurch.co.za or for our American listeners, www.christianfamilychurchsa.com.